I am the youngest of 10 children to my parents. So when I was a kid, beginning to be old enough just to remember, some of my siblings were already out of the house. There were two of them who went to Bible school and were uh, there with the intent of being missionaries. And they were some distance from home, and so on occasion, my mom would make me sit down with pen in hand and write a letter. And my letters always started the same way. Dear, how are you? I am fine. At which point I'd run out of things to say. And to fill a whole piece of binder paper was an exercise both in discipline and creativity. Letter writing is a bit of a lost art in our day. In the age of email and Facebook, communications are short. We don't write, we text. I call my mom sometimes, but very rarely will I write a letter. And yet I know that to get a letter is still very meaningful to her, as it is to me. When I'm checking my mailbox and I see a personal letter tucked between the NMAX bill and the liquor barn flyer, And the liquor barn, by the way, is very faithful at staying in touch. A letter is nice to see. I have a half dozen or so letters that I have kept for over 20 years because they're either meaningful to me or they just remind me of a specific era in my life that I want to remember. And having these letters just helps me to remember more clearly. Well, here in 3 John, we have one of only two personal letters in the New Testament, maybe three. The Timothy and Titus letters are not personal letters. They're letters to individuals whom Paul is mentoring in ministry. Philemon is Paul's only purely personal letter. And if we consider 2 John as a letter to a church, which I do, then this, 3 John, is the only other personal letter in the whole Bible. Second John is concerned with the false teaching of those who teach that Jesus did not come in the flesh. And I spoke to that last week's Sunday. And in that book, Second John, verse 10, John writes, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So 3 John now is concerned with the hospitality that is shown those traveling missionaries who do bring right teaching. And there were many such missionaries in the Christian Roman world. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are commissioned by the Antioch church to go on a missionary journey. In fact, Paul goes on three journeys. It's Paul that we usually think of as the missionary, but Barnabas later goes on another trip. We read of Peter and John on a preaching tour, Philip and Apollos, and then there are other apostles whom tradition tells us of the 12, also traveled and brought the gospel with them to different places. And as the church continues to grow, more and more missionaries are traveling throughout the Mediterranean world. And as they traveled, it was the Christians who showed them hospitality along the way. And it was a common enough practice in the Christian first century world that the Didache, which is a early Christian teaching manual, addresses it. It says, if however, sorry, whoever then comes and teaches you all these things just said, receive him. 
If, however, the teacher himself is perverted and teaches another doctrine to destroy these things, do not listen to him. But if his teaching promotes righteousness and the knowledge of the Lord, receive him as the Lord. And then it lays down some very practical considerations to prevent people sponging off of one another. It says, if he stays three days, he's a false prophet. If he asks for money, he's a false prophet. So just what it looks like to care for these traveling missionaries. And so the issue in 3 John is the contrast between those who do welcome and serve these missionaries and those who do not. The letter in brief, verses 1 to 8, John is writing his good friend Gaius. And like Philemon, who we looked at a few weeks ago, Gaius has a reputation for his consistent and loving service to the brothers. And John is delighted by what he hears about uh, Gaius. And verse 9 that begins, I have written something to the church. Maybe a reference to 2 John. Very much the same language as 3 John. Um, and again, addresses the same issue of Christian hospitality. And then from there, verses 9 to 11 goes on to speak about Diotrephes who is a leader in the church and rejects the apostolic authority of John. Diotrephes is all about power in the church, doesn't like being told what to do, refuses even to acknowledge the need to serve those traveling servants of the church. And even more, he excommunicates those who do not share his view. John is planning to come and call Diotrephes out, but in the meantime, John encourages encourages Gaius to keep doing what he's doing. Maybe Gaius is being intimidated by Diotrephes. Then after that, verse 12, John endorses Demetrius, who apparently is coming Gaius' way. And then in verses 13 to 15, John signs off with encouragement and a blessing. So that's kind of the book uh, in over, uh, overview as we have it. Now, the letter, if it was written today, might sound like this. Dear Gaius, how are you? I am fine. No, just kidding. Dear Gaius, my friend in Christ, I trust this letter finds you well and that your physical health is as good as your soul's health. People keep telling me about how you're living out what you know to be true. I love that. They tell me, actually they're telling everybody, about how well you're treating our brothers who are always on the road doing their ministry. You're living out the faith. These guys don't get any help from outside the church, so we had better support them. If we don't support them, no one else is going to. So thanks for doing what you're doing. Nice work. I've already written the church about this kind of hospitality, but Diotrephes still refuses to have anything to do with our missionary partners. If I understand right, he's even kicking people out of the church who do want to help these guys. Unbelievable. But you know Diotrephes. He likes being the church boss and ignores our authority in the church. He says all kinds of stupid stuff about us and is pretty malicious about it too. But don't worry, I'll deal with him when I get there. Whatever you do, don't become like him. He hasn't got a clue about God, not like you do. By the way, Demetrius is coming your way. He's one of the good guys. Everyone speaks well of him and I do too. Well, friend, I'd better go. But I wanted at least to fire off this quick note. I'll see you soon, though, and we'll catch up then. 
Everyone here sends you their greetings. You say hi to everyone there for us too, okay? Much love, John. John loves and respects Gaius. John calls a spade a spade when he's writing about Diotrephes in less than flattering terms. There are Diotrephes in the church today. My father-in-law says that every church has a church boss, somebody who is recognized by others as wielding a certain amount of influence and that without whom nothing much will happen. The important question is whether the church boss is a good boss or a bad boss. Are they concerned with the church or with themselves? Church bosses are not a new phenomenon. They were there even in the age of the apostles. And Diotrephes, either recognized by others or self-appointed, was not a good church boss. He was bossy. He was concerned with himself. In the meantime, Gaius, don't be cowed by Diotrephes or people like him. Keep showing your hospitality. Because if our missionary brothers don't get help from the church, they don't get help at all. And this ministry of the gospel that we are about is too important to have self-absorbed people like Diotrephes throw a wrench in it. This is what John Stott writes about Diotrephes. Self-love vitiates all relationships. Diotrephes slandered John, cold-shouldered the missionaries, and excommunicated the loyal believers because he loved himself and wanted to have the preeminence. Diotrephes gave himself to the first and only temptation there is. Who is more important, God or me? Jesus, in Mark 10, himself makes the contrast between people like Gaius and Diotrephes. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so John encourages, Beloved Gaius, do not imitate what is good. You are not supposed to be like that. But imitate good. Do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. So in imitating, what are Gaius' choices? Diotrephes lorded it over the church. Diotrephes loved to be first, and therefore, by Jesus' own words, it will be considered last. Jesus, who is the Lord of the church, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Several times in the New Testament, this idea of imitation is highlighted. Hebrews 13, verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Ephesians 5, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and lead a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 14, commands the Thessalonian church for imitating Paul 
and the Lord and the churches of Judea. And by doing that, they themselves became examples to the other churches in their own region, Macedonia. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul writes, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Which raises another question for another sermon. How ready would you be to say to someone, imitate me? Not a question to raise guilt or to make you focus on your inadequacies. For Paul surely had them too. Truth is that some of you, by simply virtue of being a mentor to someone, are already saying to someone, imitate me. Has to do with growth, not perfection. So the question is, are you growing so that you could say to someone who's even just one step behind you, imitate me, imitate my faith? But that's a whole other sermon someday. John here calls Gaius to imitate that which is good. And he already is, so keep it up, Gaius. Diotrephes is already imitating what is evil, And John is going to take him to task when he shows up in town. The character and the fruit of Gaius and Diotrephes could not be more contrasted. Gaius is a servant. Diotrephes is concerned with power. Gaius is concerned with truth. Diotrephes speaks malicious nonsense. Gaius sends the missionaries on their way in a manner worthy of God. Diotrephes kicks people out of the church. Gaius is known for his love. Diotrephes' behavior is evil. And John makes this blunt statement in verse 11 that is clearly about Diotrephes. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And John is planning to have two conversations, one face-to-face with Gaius, his friend, and one to deal with Diotrephes. Who are you imitating? Gaius, Diotrephes. Are you imitating that which is evil? Of course not. I don't kick my dog when I come home every day. I, haven't, I don't tithe to some brutal dictator. It's been quite some time since I've murdered anyone. So no, I don't imitate that which is evil. Maybe not. But have a look inside your heart for a moment. Consider your actions. Consider your attitudes. What do you see there? Grudges, continual wanting for more. Criticism, anger, the level of which surprises you, and need to be in control, either of your own circumstances or over others, or even over the church. Lust, greed. We may easily be imitating evil without even being conscious of it. Evil is like that until we stop and let God's Spirit shine a light inside and see what's in there. Or do you seek to imitate that which is good? And again, when we stop to think about it, as Christians, we know that that is what we want. And the bottom line, as we know, is that we are called to imitate Jesus, who is good. We are called to be like him. Our lives are to reflect him. Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. John 13, if I then, your Lord and Master, Jesus says, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
1 John 2, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, the Bible doesn't get any more clear than that. Imitate that which is good. Imitate him who alone is good. So what can we do to become imitators of Jesus? Three things. First, fix your eyes on Jesus. Apparently, when a police car pulls up on the road beside another car that they want to pull over, and they're hollering out the window, pull over, the police car will ease away from the other car because they know that the driver of this car is going to pull this way because you move towards what you're looking at. And the police are trying to avoid an accident. Hebrews 12. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And then in the same breath says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. When I'm trying to help my kids or someone else how to do something, I'll try to show them. And when a coach is teaching his player some skills, they'll demonstrate it. And what does a parent or a coach say to their children or their players? Watch me. So if you want to imitate what is good, if you want to imitate Jesus, watch him. Fix your eyes on him. Secondly, read and pray. There's no substitute for being in the Bible or in prayer on a regular basis. And I have found time and time again that when I drift away from the habits of prayer and scripture, that my heart and mind then drift toward what is evil. And things that I mentioned earlier, pride, control, greed, grudges, begin to reroute themselves in my own heart. So if sin is in one room in your life, the simplest way is to go into another room. And make sure that you've got a room in your heart where there is a Bible and there is a bench for two people where you can sit down and talk with Jesus for a bit. Is reading and praying difficult? Sometimes, maybe even often. That's why they're spoken of as spiritual discipline. I run, and I'm trying to gear up for a fairly long race this summer. This race is of value to me, so I'm trying to run four times every week. I limit my calorie intake so that when the run comes, I'll be carrying 15 pounds less than I did some years back. So is that difficult? Sure. Sometimes it's actually very hard, but I do it. When I'm in my office on a minus 30 day, it's nice and warm in my office, but I also have a home that is nice and warm, and supper is there. But to get there, I've got to get in my car, which is freezing cold, kind of cold that your whole body tenses up as you hunch over. But I do it because I want to leave my office and go home. Now, are prayer and scripture like that a necessary but very painful discipline? Well, not by a long shot. Sometimes you might need a little nudge, but have you ever noticed that we will push ourselves a bit to do something that asks something of us? We value it, we want it, but we do it. And prayer and scripture are like that. If we value it, we give it space in our lives. We just do And the twin disciplines of prayer and scripture are essential parts of our life if we are to imitate that which is good. And then third, and related to that, is fill your mind with what is good. 
A friend compared it once to having two dogs in your mind. Good dog and bad dog. And whatever dog you feed is going to be the one that survives. So what do you watch? What do you read? What do you listen to? What conversations do you have a part in? How much of your words are gossip or sarcasm or criticism? Read back on your Facebook statuses for the last few months. How much negative tone or complaining is there? Or how much, how much there is excellent and praiseworthy? Philippians 4 says, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely and admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Garbage in, garbage out. Evil inside, you can't imitate good outside. So these three things to move us forward in our imitation of Jesus. Now, here is the struggle. Can I imitate Jesus? Well, more and more, as I fix my eyes on Jesus, as I spend time in Scripture and prayer, if I set guards up around my heart and my mind to limit what gains access, but really, can I imitate Jesus? I mean, we already know that what we've talked about today is an ideal, but that it's one that we fail at repeatedly. Fix my eyes on Jesus, but experience tells me that I will often look away. Read and pray, but experience tells me that things, these things in my own life, at least, ebb and flow. Guard my heart and my mind, but it seems that at some point something always manages to slip through. Ken, you're telling us to do something that we know we won't do. What hope do we have? I struggle this week with this message. It's always difficult to preach exhorting passages, those texts which call us to imitate Christ, to be good, to have integrity, to live holy lives, to practice godliness, and so on. I don't want to just preach a sermon that says, go out, give godliness your best shot, make every effort to be holy because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So how do you manage the tension between the Bible's call to work hard to live righteously without making us think that God's favor is earned or forfeited by how well we do this? I mean, the Bible uses such words like strain and press on and make every effort and so on. And here in 3 John is one of those work hard ideas. Imitate what is good. Leave here this morning and go do this. Attention, work hard, yes. But at the same time, we do not preach works righteousness, earning salvation by working for it. So what do we do? We do this. Rather than see only the command to be godly, we first have to zoom out far enough to see that the call of God to a godly life is bracketed by the gospel. The gospel is behind and the gospel is before. How is this so? The gospel is behind. 
Jesus Christ has already been sent by God to live a life of perfect righteousness. Jesus has already died a substitutionary death in our place precisely because no one on this planet has ever pulled off a life of goodness. Jesus has already been raised from death and God has, as it were, included us in Christ. Sinless Jesus died for sinful you so that Jesus' perfectly God-satisfying righteousness can be applied to you, which means that we don't have to work hard to earn it, but we can't. We're not even allowed to try. And so our, our historic and continual failure to perfectly imitate what is good is already dealt with. It's forgiven. It does not hang over our heads. But the gospel is also before. It lies in our future, waiting for us there. As Christians, we readily and gratefully affirm the forgiveness of our past sins, but are we so ready to affirm affirm the forgiveness of our future sins? And maybe you've asked this question, what if I sin but die before I have the chance to ask for forgiveness? Will I go to hell? I've heard that question asked. God brings us to the cross and says, I've got you this far. The practices and the preseason are over, and now it's up to you. And then he gives us push forward and says, now get out there. Play as hard as you can. Is that how it is? Is that what God does? Is that what the gospel does? On this side of the cross, if I blow godliness or don't do what is good, am I still okay? Ask it this way. If I sin tomorrow or in 10 years, will God forgive me? And the answer is, no, he will not. We're saying again, if I sin in the future, will God forgive me? And the answer is no, he will not. And here's why. My future sins, God will not forgive because my future sins, God did forgive My forgiveness here in the future has already happened in the past. The death of Christ has secured the forgiveness of my sins. Not some of my sins. The sins I will yet commit are not to be dealt with as they happen. The hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, has my favorite verse of all the Christian songs we ever sing. My sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. The gospel rooted behind me lies before me and has dealt with my sins there too. And so we zoom out enough to see the gospel behind and before. And not only way back and way ahead, but it crowds behind us and is right in front. We hold on to it and we walk forward and it's got our back. Now we can zoom back in and in that reality, we live according to the gospel. Only then does it make any sense at all to even consider godly lives or doing good. 
It's only in the context of the gospel that we can hear the strong commands to be holy, live godly lives, have integrity, be pure, imitate God, walk as Jesus did. Only in the context of the Bible can we take seriously those and take them to heart and have the confidence to walk them out. I went rock climbing once with a friend. And I strapped on my harness, which included a thick and strong rope. And that rope was looped through an anchor above me. And the other end was at the ground where my friend was holding it. And I was fairly high off the ground. And I climbed carefully, climbed gingerly. Often afraid of a misstep. I often called down, I can't reach that. I can't do this. And finally, at one point, my friend from down below called up, throw yourself backwards off the rock. Drop. Throw yourself backwards. So I took a breath, and I let go, and I fell about four inches. He had me. I had an anchor over my head before me, and a rope that attached me to it. And I had a friend on the ground behind me who was holding that rope. A rope that could lift me up and forward. And now I could climb and move around as much as I wanted. I could fail as often as I wanted. I was safe regardless. If I missed a step or even swung away from the rock face entirely, how much freedom... That gave me to climb, to move. We navigate the rock wall upward and forward, anchored in somebody behind us who makes it possible. Is the climb easy? Not by any means. We slip more than once. But the gospel immediately holds us up and we take the next step. Now that's not to say don't worry about it. Forgiveness has already happened, so don't worry about trying to be godly and good. Well, the Bible doesn't do that. It doesn't give us permission to do that. We climb. We don't just dangle and have the gospel pull us up. With the gospel's hands on my back and trusting in the gospel in front, I still walk, I still climb, knowing that my making making it to the top is assured And whether I choose to do right or wrong, I still need to choose it. If I'm going to climb, I still need to choose the handholds and the footholds. When the easy way of apathy bypasses the harder climb of holiness, it's up to me to choose that harder road. But the gospel allows me to do it. The question again, in this context, now... What do you imitate? Please imitate what is good. And you know what that needs to look like in your life right now. You know where you are on the rock face today. Do fix your eyes on Jesus. Do create the space in your life to read and to pray. Necessary equipment by which we live the gospel. Do be vigilant about what you give access to your heart and your mind. But above all, trust in the gospel. 
Let the Bible's letter to you say, you're climbing well. You're learning to be a more confident climber the higher you go, so keep it up. Keep looking up as you climb. Keep trusting the friend behind you on the ground because he has got you. As you imitate what is good, let him who is good help you to do that as you continue your climb. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, it doesn't take me very long to see that I am not good. And I'm very grateful for the fact that I am better than I used to be. I haven't earned any more favor in your sight, but you have by grace, enabled me to make it up the wall a little bit. Faith is deepened. Character is developed. I love you a little more today than I did a year ago and 10 years ago. And by your grace and strength, I and so many of us are climbing. And we thank you for the gospel. that keeps us from failing, keeps us from falling away from right standing with you. This gospel that gives us strength as we move forward and helps us to climb up. Jesus, we want to imitate you. We want to be like you. We know that in one hand, God is doing it, conforming us to the likeness of Christ. We know, on the other hand, that you call us to do it. You give pretty clear commands to be not just nice, but to walk as Jesus did, to be holy. And we don't know how those two things work together. Who are you? Who's doing it? You or us? Well, 100% both. And we give it our best shot. Any forward step we take is entirely an act of your grace. We know that. So on this day, on this day, help us to imitate Jesus by your grace. And we pray it by your grace in the name of Jesus. Amen.